for the love of goats. We are talking about everything goat. Whether you're a goat owner, a breeder, or just a fan of these wonderful creatures, we've got you covered. And now, here's Deborah Neiman. Hello, everyone, and welcome to today's episode. This is going to be extremely interesting, I think, for a lot of people. I know it will be for me. Thankfully, I have absolutely no personal experience with Q fever, which is the topic of today. And we are joined by Dr. Chuck Gazer, small ruminant epidemiologist for the USDA and the Animal Plant Health Inspection Service. And he does a lot of other cool stuff. So I'm going to go ahead and say welcome to the show and tell us a little more about what you do. Thank you, Deborah. Basically, I'm a small ruminant health epidemiologist with the sheep and goat team under the Ruminant Health Center for Veterinary Services under USDA. And my primary job is involved with uh, scrapie eradication, which is a disease we talked about previously, I think. And then also with other diseases such as TB, brucellosis, and the disease we're talking about today, coxiolosis, or Q fever in humans, and any one health or zoonotic type disease that involves small ruminants. Okay, so let's just jump right into this. And I have read about this disease, but my knowledge is like an eighth of a teaspoon compared to your gallons of knowledge. So I'm just going to let you jump right in and tell us what is Coxiella Burnetti Q fever and why should we care about it? Okay, well, Coxiella Burnetti or It was originally found in humans in Australia in the 1930s, where it was called query fever or Q fever. So Coxiella burnetii causes Q fever in humans or coxiolosis in animals. It is a small intracellular bacteria. It is ubiquitous in the U.S. It is found worldwide. A small cellular version of it is very resistant. It is highly infectious. Only one to 10 organisms can produce infection. It can be spread in dust, manure, air. It is zoonotic, and it can be found in all ruminants, most other domestic animals, and even wild animals, and even in birds. All of that makes it very difficult to control. It is also classified as a bioterrorism agent and therefore is a select agent which is controlled. So it's difficult to work with this agent in the laboratory and requires a special biosafety level three laboratory to even culture it. Yeah, that was one of the things I was reading about it. I was so shocked when I saw that some labs refused to do testing for it because it's so dangerous to work with. Yes, definitely. And that's the same situation with most of our animal diseases that are classified as bioterrorism agents or select agents. And that includes brucellosis, uh, which is, a you know, around the greater Yellowstone area as a, a primary cause of uh, disease in elk and in cattle. But again, it's very difficult to work with. And that's what uh, makes it difficult to develop different vaccines and diagnostic tests and other things for this disease. So when you look at this in the vet textbooks, it is in the chapters on abortion, because that seems to be like the main symptom is that your goats will abort. So can you tell us a little bit more about that? Yes, it should be included in any abortion screening that you do in a herd or a flock. And basically, it can cause abortions. Uh, We primarily hear about it when a 
let's say somebody, uh, you have an existing herd and somebody brings in a new additions or new multiple additions to the herd, then all of a sudden the next year you have an abortion storm where multiple animals abort. So you have brought that disease into the herd. And basically the animals themselves, the does may not show any clinical signs of disease besides abortion. And in some cases, they may not even be shedding the organism after the abortion, but the, the primary tissues that are loaded with this bacteria are the placenta, the aborted fetus, and any birthing fluids that are associated with the aborted fetus. So it sounds to me like this is a really good reason you should always be wearing gloves when you are delivering baby goats. <laughs> I agree. And, and one of the control measures or management measures we'll talk about is the need to have a separate birthing areas for your pregnant does, have fresh bedding in those areas. After they deliver, immediately remove the placenta and any contaminated uh, bedding. If there is an abortion, submit the placenta and the aborted fetus for testing to determine what the cause of the abortion is. They can also produce some weak kids that may not show any other signs besides being weak and slow producers. So it's possible that the doe is not going to just completely abort. And, you know, like if she's pregnant with two or three kids, she may not just completely abort and lose all three of them. She may carry to term and then deliver one or two live kids as well as a mummified kid that died two to four weeks earlier. That's possible, but usually if they have a heavy load of bacteria and it's in the placentas, they will most likely lose all of the fetuses. So that's possible, but it depends on when, when they have the active infection and at what point that infection occurred within the fetuses. Okay. And I want to stress here that you said that for somebody to get a positive diagnosis on this, that they have to submit both the fetus and the placenta. Cause that was one of the things I was reading that if you submit only the fetus in this case, you may not get a diagnosis because the answer is going to be in the placenta. The best diagnostic tissue for this disease is a placenta because that's where the billions of bacteria are found in the cotyledons within the placenta. And that is probably the best tissue for diagnosing the disease. Okay. So how is this then transmitted between goats? Like if you bring in a new goat, how are they going to give it to your other goats? Can they give it to them before they kid? Yes. Theoretically, yes. We anticipate that there's a large number of animals or does that could actually have the disease, harbor the disease, and not be spreading it at a certain time and only shed the bacteria at particular times. Testing can be difficult, but they normally are spread at delivery. So when they're kidding, that is the most common time that is spread. It can be aerosolized. It can be ingested. You know, it's common, especially if they're commingled, animals are commingled, that they may go over and, you know, lick on a new kid or whatever. So those are all ways that it can be spread and it can be spread in the air. This is a very resistant bacteria. Once the uh, the bedding material, or once there's dust and dirt in the environment and that is aerosolized, it can be blown to adjacent farms. In a study done in Netherlands where they had a large outbreak of this disease, they found that the bacteria could actually travel five kilometers away in the air. Wow, that is incredible. Like the more you tell me and the more I've read about this, it's just mind blowing to me that like this problem isn't more pervasive. 
Because one of the things I saw too in the reading was that sheep are shown to shed the organism in feces for up to five months and in milk for four months. Yes, yes. It, in most cases, you know, we look at in goats, uh, we look at it particularly that it's you're looking at probably three weeks after delivery, they're probably still spreading it in the vaginal uh, f- fluids that are coming out and possibly in the milk. So it can be spread in the milk. And there are bulk milk tank testing that can be done to determine if that bacteria is anywhere within your herd. So that's a good way to screen. And, and it's also a screening test that can be done with ELISA test where you test a percentage of the herd to determine if the disease is there. The problem is that it's an intracellular bacteria and it may not be shedding all the time. It may not always be present. And so diagnosis is not always perfect, except in the aborted fetus and placenta, especially if the diagnostic lab you're using can conduct PCR testing of those tissues, which is much more accurate, actually looks for the antigen or the bacteria itself. So thinking about the fact that this is in milk and it's zoonotic, can people get it from drinking raw milk from an yes. infected goat? Yes, ma'am. Yes, ma'am. And that is one of the reasons I know it's, there's a lot of controversy with raw milk products. And we know in most states, the public health rules prohibit the sale of raw milk or for only certain specific purposes. Pasteurization will kill the coxiolosis, and it will kill other diseases uh, such as listeria, TB, brucellosis, other diseases that can be transmitted in milk. So that's why, you know, when public health occurred at the turn of the 20th century, when pasteurization was invented, it really decreased the amount of disease that was spread in milk. So it's really uh, one of those big success stories for public health in the United States and in the world. So let's talk a little bit about Q fever in people then. So if somebody did get it, what kind of symptoms does a human get when they get Q fever? Well, it's usually if they get any symptoms at all, it can be subclinical or asymptomatic. And we think that as many as half the people that get disease will not even show symptoms. But those that do show symptoms will have flu-like symptoms that usually occur two to six weeks after they are exposed to the bacteria. And the flu-like symptoms include things like fever, headache, chills, sweats, uh, and fatigue. And the symptoms usually last for about 10 to 14 days. Now, if you have symptoms, about 30 to 50% of those people with symptoms will develop pneumonia also. And lastly, of those people with symptoms, probably less than 5% will develop a chronic disease with endocarditis, hepatitis, arthritis, osteomyelitis, and chronic pneumonia. So it can be a long-term chronic disease as well, but luckily only in about 5% of those that show clinical signs. Ew, that sounds really horrible. So for the most part, I, you know, I was thinking like, as I was reading about this again in the vet textbooks, I was feeling like, you know, we're doing good, you know, like I've had a closed herd since 2005. I know my goats are healthy and stuff until I read that this disease can also be transmitted by ticks. Yes, it can be transmitted by ticks. It can be transmitted by wild rodents and other animals around your premises. You know, if you have barn cats, can be transmitted by cats, but all these 
animals we're talking about, including the ticks, they have to have a source. So right. if, if you don't have a positive source around you, then you're pretty safe. And maintaining a closed herd is one of the good management ways to do this. If you haven't had any abortion issues in your herd and you have a closed herd, then uh, that's one of the best things you can do to prevent it from entering in your, into your facility and into your herd. Okay. Wow. This is like one of the most incredible diseases that I think I've ever learned about, like in any species, not just goats, but the fact that like it can go across so many different species and it's not just mammals even, you know, it can be insects like ticks. And so I think everybody probably understands by now why we need to care about this disease. And we've talked about a few things that you can do. What would you say is like the most important thing that people do to make sure that they don't ever have any personal experience with this disease? Well, let's go over some control things that you can use within your herd. We mentioned, you know, a closed herd, good pile security. Uh, You know, if you're going to have to add any animals to your herd, be sure that they're quarantined initially, get them from a reliable source. uh, And especially for someone that, you know, has been testing their herd and and looks out for a coxiolosis and has not had any positive cases in their their herd. So that would be an excellent source. Uh, If you have infected animals, uh, you know, you need to manage them properly, keep them separate from the other animals. If they are positive, make sure they're milked last. Make sure when they kid that they're downwind from all the other animals that are gestating animals or animals that are uh, susceptible to disease. And, you know, maintain excellent and stringent hygiene with people that visit your farm. That's something else, you know. Uh, and the primary thing that I think you can do to manage this disease within your particular herd, especially if you don't know the status of that herd, is to have a separate kidding area, potentially enclosed and potentially with the animals separated with clean bedding material, good enclosed ventilation for that facility, and then remove any birthing materials, contaminated bedding materials, burn those or compost them for 90 days at least. Uh, And then after they leave that particular kidding facility or kidding area, then clean that out, wash it down with some detergent. And there are a few disinfectants that will help. Now, one of the things you don't want to do is you don't want to kick up a lot of dust because we mentioned before that this agent can be transmitted in dust and can travel long areas. So we use a light misting water to keep the dust down and before we clean the area up. So those are all things that help. Now in humans, who are the most susceptible to the disease? And of course, those high-risk people are immunocompromised people, just like with COVID, and those individuals that are pregnant. If somebody is pregnant, they have to take extra precautions or either not get involved in working in the kidding area for those goats. Extra precautions, we're talking about gloves, eye protection, masks, And after you leave the facility, before you take that mask and gloves off, uh, take those that outer garment off or coveralls and wash them so that you don't bring anything into the house. Wow. You know, it never occurred to me that you would need to do anything more than just wear gloves when attending a birth to keep yourself safe. But I mean, you've already explained all the reasons why, because this disease can be transmitted, not just through skin, but like in the air and everything. Yeah, primarily through inhalation is the primary means of transmission. Wow. 
Wow. So can it go through your skin or do you have to have a cut or something on the skin? I am not sure about that. I mean, we do wear gloves and I know it it can go through mucous membranes, which is why we wear eye protection, but I would definitely assume that it does. And I would wear protection and then maintain good personal hygiene, hand hygiene to make sure that it doesn't enter the body that way. I did not read where it can actually actively enter through a cup, but you do have to maintain excellent hand hygiene, which includes gloves, like you're saying. And after the gloves are removed, wash your hands as well. Yeah, I'm very conscientious now about cuts because my husband got a really severe infection when he cut himself one time butchering chickens, Ah. you know, totally healthy chickens. (laughs) (laughs) And a few days later, or it was a week later, like he's got this red streak running up his arm and he had to be on antibiotics for an extended period of time. So after that, I have been very adamant about like, you know, the importance of wearing gloves, at goat births. Definitely. We've come a long way and, you know, personal protection is, is very important nowadays. I remember I graduated from vet school back in 1978 and it wasn't very long before that, that people were doing barehanded surgeries, barehanded palpations, barehanded delivery of calves and et cetera. So we've come a long way and we understand the importance of personal protection. Yeah. It's funny that you mentioned that because I remember telling my husband recently, you know, when I was a little girl, I remember like, I think I was in fourth grade or so when I first learned about germs And then going to the dentist and having him put his bare hands in my mouth and telling my mother, I was concerned about the germs, you know, because didn't he just have his hands in somebody else's mouth? And my mother said, oh no, don't worry about it. He washes his hands. (laughs) Uh, That was a, you were a very smart young lady. And and of course now they they wear (laughs) gloves, they wear masks, they put plastic on the back of the chairs, they have plastic on the dental instruments, et cetera. So they, they take a lot of precautions now. Yeah, it is amazing how far we've come in terms of our understanding of how germs can be transmitted and disease can be transmitted. And I think, you know, COVID has been a good one to open everybody's eyes on the spread of disease and how it's spread. Yeah, exactly. This conversation makes me so happy that I have had goats since 2002 and I've had a closed herd since 2005. (laughs) Because, you know, I still feel pretty confident that knock on wood, I will not see this at any point, but it also, it's really scary to me because goats have gotten so popular in the last five years. I get so many emails from people who just buy some goats off of Craigslist from somebody who maybe had them for a couple of years, knows nothing about them. I mean, I I just get some of the craziest emails from people And it's like, you know, they don't know anything about disease testing. They bought from somebody who doesn't know anything about diseases and who knows who they bought from. So it's just really scary to think of how easily diseases can get transmitted. I know when I got started in 2002, I joined Yahoo groups and goats also were not very popular back then. And everybody on those Yahoo groups was like, so cognizant of the possibility, especially of CAE, but also Yonis and CL and stuff and of of testing and everything. And now I just feel like the pendulum has swung so far in the other direction. You know, I, I was just emailing last night with somebody who bought 
a, a goat that has some problems. And I'm like, you really need to get all these goats tested for disease. And he's like, oh, no, they look healthy. Yeah, or buy them from reputable producers, you know, people, you know, people that have good biosecurity in their own herd. And uh, you may pay a little extra, but it's safe. And we just had an incident where an animal that was positive for scrapie, which is one of the primary program diseases I work with, that was purchased in another state by a dealer, transferred multiple states away, sold on Craigslist, ended up at multiple people's homes as it moved from home to home. And, you know, finding those animals that could have been exposed to scrapie when we ended up with one positive animal is is very difficult. And scrapie is, is just a insidious, slow-growing disease, but not near as common as the other diseases we're talking about. And that you mentioned, CAE, CL, uh, Yonis, and all those other diseases. So biosecurity works with all those diseases. Yeah. And if you're listening right now and you have not heard the Scrapey episode, I really recommend that you go listen to that because that's the thing that makes it basically impossible for most of us to sell goats to somebody in another country because we still have Scrapey in this country. You know, and we were so close. I think when I saw you speak at the ADGA conference in 2017, you said that we had gone three years at that point with no recorded cases. And I was so excited, you know, because like after seven years, we can export animals. And um, I think it may have been it may have been two years. But yes, those last few cases are the ones that are most difficult to find. And this is one disease we're trying to eradicate, just like brucellosis and tuberculosis and and bovine tuberculosis. Those are diseases we're trying to eradicate from the United States. So we're trying to find those last few cases. And Once we find those cases and we get them eradicated, then we open up export to the rest of the world. In many cases, because our animals have those diseases and because they're not eliminated, it restricts our ability to export. Yeah. So our conversation today about Q fever and Coxiella burnetti has just been super informative and I think just really underscores the importance of not buying a $50 goat off of Craigslist or even... This guy I was emailing with yesterday spent $300 on an unregistered goat from a very shady guy. (laughs) And so it's just really, you know, I was originally happy that goats were becoming more popular because I thought, oh, this will get us more attention in the veterinary community. Hopefully we'll get more research and stuff. But then, you know, it's like the popular dog syndrome. You start to see more problems. Right. And, you know, we have large dairies that are developing in the U.S. And, you know, I think if you could ever talk to one of those large dairies and just talk about how that industry is growing in the United States, there are dairies now that that are milking 9,000 animals. And it's it's amazing to see those operations. But, you know, there's a shortage of animals Uh, right now. You know, the price is up and they're having difficulty meeting the demand for those animals, sheep and goats. So from my side, with small ruminants, we know that goats are definitely an industry that's growing, but still not enough to meet the demand that's out there. Wow. When you said 9,000, you mean goat dairies with 9,000? Yes, ma'am. Wow. I had not heard that some of them had gotten that big. I Last I had heard, the biggest one I'd heard was low thousands, but that's just huge. And that makes it really hard to keep track. I can't even comprehend how you you, track and and, and how do you get enough animals? I mean, in most cases, we can't import the animals into the United States right now because a lot of those animals are restricted. So 
uh, we're importing semen to try to get the genetics. And, and I know that the dairy industry is really pushing to improve our genetics. So there's always a push for that. Yeah. Wow. This has been so interesting. Do you have any final thoughts on um, Coxiella Bernetti or? Well, I think we've covered, you know, how to control it within your particular environment, those individuals that are most susceptible and how to prevent it in those individuals that are most susceptible. In almost every state, Coxiella Burnetti is a reportable disease. But because it's reportable, and it's also reportable internationally at the OIE, and uh, for humans, it's reportable if humans get it as well. So what we do in veterinary services is if we hear about a positive test, uh, we have a guidance document that tells folks, tells our regulatory personnel that, you know, we can assist in educating the people and maybe helping them to set up a management program to decrease the spread of the disease within their particular herd and also things they can do to protect themselves. And a lot of times uh, public health will get involved with that as well. Again, depends a lot on the state. It depends on state rules on how they respond. Uh, some states may have it as a reportable disease, but don't respond to it. Whereas other states may conduct a full-blown investigation and trace outs for any animals that came into the herd or went out of the herd. And uh, an example, Colorado was very active in investigating any outbreak they had. And I think public health will get more involved when you have, uh, let's say you're in a state where the sale of raw milk is legal or where you have multiple species of animals on the same premises that could be a source or a spread for that disease as well. So those are all things to look for. How are we finally going to be able to eliminate this disease and control it? We probably need a good human vaccine and a good animal vaccine. There is a good animal vaccine in Europe, but so far they have not had an interest in moving that into the United States. There is a good human vaccine in Australia. Again, the same situation. Someone has to produce that. We have gone to our agricultural research service, and they are looking into studies right now on, are there some genetics that can protect goats or sheep or cattle from coxiolosis? Also, we have asked them in their five-year plan, could they develop a vaccine for animals? But even if you develop a vaccine, as you've seen, Goats and sheep are considered a small production group compared to cattle, pigs, and poultry. So a lot of the companies that develop vaccines or that produce vaccines may not find it economically feasible to do so. But in this case, since it involves so many species and almost all ruminants, I would think there'd be a market. So if we can develop a vaccine in the United States and we can find someone to produce it, I think that will be a big plus for eliminating this disease from the United States, or at least controlling it. Yeah. Well, if you've got dairies with thousands of goats on them, I would think they would be the ones who would be really interested in that. Oh, definitely. Because, I mean, this could be really devastating for them to all of a sudden have all of their goats aborting. And the goat industry has told us this is a priority for them to get a vaccine to control coxiolosis. Yeah. And one thing too, I just realized we had not mentioned is that treatment with antibiotics is really not that helpful. Yes. Uh, we know that this disease is susceptible. You can control a large abortion storm if, if the animal's not already infected far enough to where it will abort. Tetracyclines, oxytet, all the different tetracyclines are effective 
to some degree, but they may not eliminate the disease. And in most cases, they are not recommended because uh, you can produce uh, resistance. We always worry about antibiotic resistance. It doesn't eliminate the disease, but in some large outbreaks, your herd veterinarian may want to try that to slow down the spread of the disease, but again, not very effective and not recommended. Okay. Thank you so much. This has been an amazing episode. I learned so much and uh, I'm so grateful that, you know, I started in goats when I did and was surrounded by people who took infectious disease really seriously. Thank you so much. Well, thank you for the chance to speak with you again. And uh, you always run a very professional podcast and you're spreading the word to the producers in the field. And we really appreciate it. Thanks for everything that you do as well. And that's it for today's show. If you haven't already done so, be sure to hit the subscribe button so that you don't miss any episodes. To see show notes, you can always visit ForTheLoveOfGoats.com. And you can follow us on Facebook at Facebook.com slash Love Goats Podcast. See you again next time. Bye for now.